who said it was simple. There are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter before they bear. Sitting in netics, the women rally before they march, discussing the problematic girls they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes a waiting brother to serve them first, and the ladies neither notice nor reject the slighter pleasures of their slavery. But I, who am bound by my mirror as well as my bed, see causes and color as well as sex, and sit here wondering which me will survive all these liberations. Audrey Lord, from A Land Where Other People Live, 1973. Children gather around, come sit by the cannon fire, come and join the conversation. Children gather around, if written works are your desire. Sit beside the flame of the cannon fire. Hi guys, welcome to Cannon Fire, a nerdy literary podcast focusing on the stories, creations, and histories of literary figures too red hot for the Western canon. I'm G, the editor and resident layman of the podcast, and since I am recording this at midnight in my bedroom at home. My co-hosts are not here, but they are Zoe Bergmeier-Sweat and Caitlin Porter, and they are our resident enthusiasts slash experts of the podcast. In this episode, we discuss Audre Lorde, a lesbian woman of color who was as bold as she was unapologetic. Remus, do me a favor. Go away. Sorry, I'm talking to my cat. Now, this is normally where I would announce new patrons and sponsors, but since we don't have any yet, I will just beg you to go donate to our Patreon for even more awesome nerdy content, which I will tell you about at the outro. That's patreon.com backslash cannonfire. And now, sit back and relax into your lit class for today. Episode 6, Part 1, Deliberate and Afraid of Nothing. So that was interesting. So that's Audre Lord. And so excited. That's who we're talking about today. We are talking about Audre Lord. We are finally, finally talking about Audre Lord, and I'm so, so thrilled. Zoe is about to have an aneurysm. So Zoe's been wanting to talk about Audre Lord since since I found out that she was a person that existed and <laughs> I never learned about. Anyway, so we're gonna get more into that. But I've I've a lot to say about Audre Lord, but first I wanna go into Y'all's experiences interacting with Audre Lorde. So I was telling you guys before we started recording, I don't know who this is. I literally, my entire uh, experience with Audre Lorde is that quote that I posted on the Facebook page yesterday and that poem that you read just now. That is all I know about her, which is why we're learning about her in this podcast. And it might take a while. (laughs) We'll see. It should take a while. She deserves all the time that she can get. But I am biased. I'm so clearly biased. I'm not going to hide my bias about Audre Lorde because I love her so much. Caitlin, how did you learn about Audre Lorde? So we haven't come up with we haven't come up with a name for this professor yet or this doctor. Doctor. She is a doctor. <laughs> 
Uh, she's also, or was a professor. She's retired now, but she also was, she could be both. Um, anyway, we haven't come up with a name for her yet, but in my junior year of college, I took a class, I took African-American literature with her. Um, and in that class, we learned about Audre Lorde and we learned about her in the context of African-American literature. And so there was a bit about her identity, her queer identity, a bit about her, feminist identity, but mostly because of what the subject matter of the class was, it was about her identity as a black woman. And so that's most of what I know her for. And of course, you can't talk about Audre Lorde and her talking about racism if you don't also hear her talking about sexism because that's and uh, homophobia and all of these things because that's one of the great things about her is she is so intersectional in what she talks about and how it affects her. But that is mostly how I learned about her was through a lens of blackness rather than any of her other identities. She has so many. <laughs> so I'm going to ask my favorite question. Gay? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So um, I learned about her three different times. I am going to talk for a while about this because I think it's important to note exactly how I came across her and in which ways she was talked about. My first introduction to her, it was in my first poetry workshop class that I took with the last head of the English department before Caitlin and I graduated. This was before he was the head of the English department. He is Jewish and super liberal, wonderful, wonderful teacher. Super sweet. Taught me so much about how to construct a poetry book and let me feel very safe in exploring how to express myself and um, how creativity flows. Wonderful teacher and very respectful. And for that class, we had a required book to read that was the Penguin Anthology of Contemporary Poets, I believe, something along that line. And Audre Lorde was the only black woman poet listed in there. And everybody in that poetry class had to present on a poet. And one of my close friends that was in extracurriculars with me chose Audre Lorde. And I came up to her after class and I was like, I spent half an hour and I looked up every single poet that was in that book. And Audre Lorde was the only black woman in there. And she didn't know. And I was like, thank you so much for choosing her. I don't know why you chose her. Um, because clearly it wasn't just to give a black voice to the work. Um, but I'm so grateful that you did. And I'm going to be in our discussion with um, Audre Lorde's importance to literature. I will read the poem that this person read in that class. That was my first introduction to who this wonderful lady was. And... My second time learning about Audre Lorde was in my Women of Color and Feminism class. And in that class, we read the Master's Tools essay and the Uses of Anger essay that uh, Audre Lorde wrote. And I learned about her queer, black, socialist, female identities in intersection with each other and how she 
spoke to power against feminism and called white-stream feminism, which is white mainstream feminism, uh, which still exists. It's what white feminists are. She called them racist and sexist, which they are. And she also called out their homophobia, which they did not approve of. And we learned about her in relation to other queer women of color who were radical. Audre Lorde, in this context, is very radical to the capitalist society because she is full-blown socialist. She does not believe in capitalism. She was very closely tied to Martin Luther King's ideas in that concept, but she also was against simply Black liberation movement because of how sexist they could be. And she learning about all the activism because we really haven't gone into when she lived. Um, but Audre Lorde lived during the civil rights era. She was born in 1934. She died in 1992. Very tumultuous years for a black queer female in America. No matter if she was in the North or in the South, she mostly lived in the North but she was very um, knowledgeable about everything that the civil rights movement was fighting for. And she's very critical of every single movement that would ignore or oppress other people, which I think is also why Joy Harjo uh, was so respectful and addressed poems to Audre Lorde, because Audre Lorde is the epitome of what we would consider intersectional feminism or intersectional womanism. And Audre Lorde was very loud about her identities. She was very open. She was kind of like Phyllis Wheatley in terms of like, I am from here. You cannot erase um, the fact that you enslaved me and that I wasn't born a slave. Audre Lorde was very like, I am lesbian, hear me roar. You cannot oppress women of color. You cannot oppress gays. You cannot oppress people through class systems of oppression. You cannot do this because doing this has not liberated anybody. And you are just trying to be the next white man. And that is wrong. And Audre Lorde is very angry. And Audre Lorde understands the difference between hate and anger which is a nuance that not many people understand. And it took me reading her essay on the uses of anger to really understand the different connotations that she's talking about and the different degrees that she's talking about because she doesn't hate people. Audre Lorde is a woman of love. She writes explicit lesbian poetry that is not really talked about at all. A lot of times people only focus on her oppression poetry and we'll get more into that. But Audre Lorde was full of righteous anger at the oppression of people, but she loved humanity. And so reading her, I just relax into it, which a lot of people don't seem to understand because they're like, oh, Audre Lorde, she's fired up. She is angry. She is passionate. I'm like, yeah, and there's nothing wrong with an angry black woman because that's pointing to exactly what is wrong with society. And... I can just relax and trust that she knows what she's talking about and that her argument will lead me to the point that she's trying to make in poetry and essays in the books that she wrote. And I don't have to critically analyze her to the degree that I would a white man. Um, and so it, reading her works is very rejuvenating for me. And I had to read her poetry to understand why poetry mattered. It wasn't that I need to claim that Audre Lorde is um, 
like a personal mentor or taught me everything. I just need to read Audre Lorde and respect every single point that she's making and say she utilized poetry. Her poetry is exactly the poetry that I love to read because she tells you straight up and gorgeous non divvying language, non-stammering or stumbling language, exactly what is wrong, exactly what she's writing about, and she sends all of her emotions into her words, and it is gorgeous to read, and it is powerful, and it is fully just relaxing to me, and I love reading her. And then the last time that I met Audre Lorde in college, four years ago, nobody knew who she was, and now every single chance that people get they seem to name drop her which I'm so pleased about to notice that because I taught people about her at a Thanksgiving at a friend's Thanksgiving one time and introduced them to her four years ago and they have responded they've been like oh I never heard of this person they were like six season older and they had never heard of her and now they're like every chance Everywhere I turn in bookstores and conversations, I hear her name, and I'm so happy that people are talking about her, but I don't think that they're fully giving the wide scope of what she contributed to all of the facets of herself and all the communities that she fought for, because she fought for every single person that she could, and she fought for dismantling systems, which is very difficult to do, and she wasn't she didn't compromise on any position, which is why we don't hear about her as much as we do with Rosa Parks in Black History Month, is because um, the civil rights movement was trying to move forward and a lot of discussion was had about what points to compromise on in order to get somewhere for different communities. And Audre Lorde was like, we can't compromise on any community because every single community matters and every single community that isn't a white man is being oppressed and that all needs to change. And that made her radical and that made her dangerous and she was angry and it gave her passion and it gave her fuel to keep moving throughout her entire life, to keep trying to raise up people. And then I learned about her again, where we read Zami, a new spelling of my name, in my queer of color poetry class, which was queer theory mixed with queer poets of color in the 21st century, mixed with queer literature written by people of color in the 20th century. But queer theory, I'm not going to get into. It is very dense. I'm not a theory person. And this professor had us read theory so that we could have conversations about the works that we would read by people, have conversations of them with the points that the theory itself was making. And it's very, very dense. It goes into Judith Butler. It goes into dismantling why we need gender markers. It goes into all of these facets of societal constructs, which is very important to talk about because honestly, a lot of things that society says is necessary and takes for granted were designed by white men to separate people. And so we read Judith Butler. We read the start of Queer Theory we read about why we might not need to claim the gender female and we might not need to claim the gender male 
and we could live in a society that is completely free of those constructs and that is to do that that is very hard mental work to to envision so that class was challenging to me in the way that um Amelia Lanyard's work was challenging to her time because a lot of us couldn't really understand throwing away an identity that we would claim so close to because a lot of feminism is saying, I am woman, I will hold on to my womanhood, I will do this. And in doing that, you're not really being a great ally to people outside of the binary in terms of like, you can hold on to that identity, but society can let that identity go because that identity is being used to punish people who don't claim that identity. And white feminism is being used to punish people that don't claim all the things about feminism that you're trying to fight for. I wanted to say about that, whenever we say white feminism, guys, we're not talking about white people who are feminists. We're talking about this is a specific brand of feminism that right. isn't feminism. It's focused right. solely on white females. It is not intersectional. It is not trans-friendly. It most often is, from my experience, uh, ter- like turfy, very, very turfy. That's trans-exclusionary trans- radical feminism. Yeah. I did not yeah, know that. I have not seen a lot of uh, women of color in, in turf um spaces they wouldn't be be. um so it's mostly white people and it's mostly people who don't believe that trans women are women or belong in women's spaces and they're wrong so enough with the gatekeeping y'all so that's that's my introduction your introduction by the way (laughs) 15 minutes long i told you i was i told you i was talking for a while while. uh but i think it's important she was audrey lord was And this isn't limited to just who she was. She was not only just a lesbian. She wasn't only just black. She was only just a cis woman. She wasn't just a mother. She was that and more. And she was full-on liberator. She was a ball of energy that America could not control or contain. And they hated her for Uh, it. So just what you were saying about her having such a big impact that America didn't know what to do with her. It was actually also an international impact because she, when she was a visiting professor, when she was a visiting professor in West Berlin in the 80s, she met up with a bunch of black women activists in Germany and helped kind of push forward the Afro-German movement, uh, which was one of the first, if not the first, big black movements in Germany. Um... I did not know that, and I'm so happy to know that now, mm-hmm. because she was involved in every single country she right, could get right. involved. She, uh, she actually mentored a bunch of poets, too, and I'm, I was looking at them, and I'm like, we have to do at least one of these in our list, but some of them include uh, German poets, uh, Afro-German poets, May Ayim, Ika Hugel-Marshall, and Helga Emde. Um, I probably have butchered at least one of those names, and if so, I apologize. And we will definitely look into them for future episodes because Audre Lorde did not exist in a vacuum and a lot of times when she's name dropped she's name dropped as the one radical queer black lesbian feminist of her time so she wasn't kind of going back to where this whole because I think a pretty substantial influence for her caring so much about 
the world and outside of the U.S. outside of U.S. borders was probably that both of her parents were immigrants. Uh, she from... was from Granada in the Caribbean. In nice. Caribbean. That's cool. She was born on February 18th, 1934 in New York City. Her parents were immigrants from Granada, and they had originally intended to go back to Granada, but then the Depression happened, which derailed everybody's plans. Yeah. Yeah, so Audre Lorde was a first-generation immigrant. Yes. kind of like Caitlin. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned Zami, a new spelling of my name. Yes. I have it on my bookshelf, uh, actually. She, her name was originally spelled with a Y. O-U-D-R-E-Y, but she didn't like the aesthetic of it, um, and she didn't like the Y hanging at the end, and so she thought it would be really cool if her names are symmetrical, and so she cut off the Y and was Audre Lorde. So she cut off the Y and changed the O to an A. You said O-U-D-R-E-Y. Okay, so it was the, yeah, like how everybody spells Audrey. And she changed it. Zami is a very interesting book because what it is, it's a creative nonfiction autobiography, which nobody ever thought to do. But you read it and it's how Audre Lorde saw her life and saw her growing up. It it might not be 100% factual in terms of dates and in terms of what actually happened, but it's how Audre Lorde reclaimed her childhood and said i'm telling you my life on my terms and it's so radical and it's she puts it out there as a creative nonfiction piece mm-hmm. and she's open about this is creative nonfiction, and creative nonfiction is very difficult to do for me oh, yeah. <laughs> i took a creative nonfiction workshop class and that was a struggle it helped me understand poetry for sure but I just love how Audre Lorde is just, not only is she in every single country she could go to, she's in every single literary style she could write um, in. So yeah, that definitely impacted her life. She grew up listening to stories of her mom's life in the West Indies, which is what Granada was considered part of. Um, she was the youngest of three sisters. Her older sisters were named Phyllis and Helen Lorde. Um, And she actually didn't speak until she was five, and then she would memorize poems to communicate. So if somebody asked her how her day was going, she would recite a poem that she had memorized to tell them how her day was going. Like, that was how integral poetry was to her life and to her experience, is it was her primary method of communication for the first part of her life. That's really cool, because that's also how a lot of non-white cultures communicate in terms of if you ask a question you get an you get an answer hidden in a poem or in a story um, because that's how a lot of morals are passed down in um, some communities and that's how elders in Ghana answer questions they don't give you an answer they give you an experience and you have to determine what they're trying to say that explains so much about my grandparents yeah because that's a they infuriate me with it because i was raised by a white father and a cherokee mother and my mother kind of picked up on parenting tips from my dad and so she doesn't answer questions like in the way you just described she answers questions 
with kind of a mix, which is less infuriating because it's, she does it like a teacher because she is a teacher. Um, meanwhile, my dad answers with, go ask your mother, like every dad does. But my grandparents, I've never heard them not answer a question with a story from the Bible, from mythology, from whatever, from their own experiences. And I'm just like, I didn't, I didn't ask what you did on Tuesday, February the 3rd in 1947. I asked what's for dinner tonight. You know? That's kind of, it's in a different way, but that's also kind of a thing in Jewish culture too, is like, if you ask a question, you'll get a story from the Tanakh, or you'll get something that a rabbi said once, um, rather than a straight answer. In my experience living in your house, Kate, it's more that if you ask a question, you'll get a question back. That's true. That is the difference. (laughs) Like you get a story too, but more often than not, you get a question back and it turns into this just de-evolution of rhetorical questions being asked back and forth for 30 minutes. And it's a lot of fun. So that doesn't surprise me at all that she might have picked that up from her parents. Yeah. yeah. If she didn't speak until she had something to yeah. tell. Yeah. You know? I, I She can do no wrong in my mind. She was educated. She had a rough time in school. She went to believe a catholic school and for her primary education she went to to a catholic school where she experienced a lot of racism a lot of sex a lot of abuse like not necessarily like sexual abuse but she was abused for not knowing answers she was abused for asking the wrong questions she was she did not her learning was stifled Mm -hmm. that's still really really true in a lot of catholic schools yeah, and she also, her signature look has uh, glasses, which she's worn for most of her life. She has very thick glasses, and yeah. she's, it's great. I, I, I love when people wear glasses because, I don't know, it's an aesthetic. <laughs> it's, I, I have to wear glasses, but it's an aesthetic that I just cannot get behind. And it's, I love the way I look in glasses, but... As soon as those glasses start sliding down my face, all bets are off. Who knows what's going to happen to those glasses? I've broken three pair in the last four years because I got so angry about them that I just let them shake off my face and fall to the floor. So I agree with you on the aesthetic, but having something sitting on my face just don't work. I only wear glasses when I drive. So I don't really have that problem because I'm never looking down when I'm driving. I am blind as a bat. Um, she published her first poem, her verse of many, in, uh, Seventeen Magazine, which I did not know Seventeen Magazine was that old. Uh, Yeah, and I didn't know they did poetry. Uh, I was actually really kind of pleased by that, because later on she did become a teacher, and she was always of the opinion that people's art shouldn't be dismissed based on age. And I think that's probably part of where she came from, is that when she was a teenager and when she was in... She started writing poetry in eighth grade, so she was really young. And then she got... When she was 16, she got that poem uh, published. She was never pretentious about, like, oh, you're too young to understand whatever, mm-hmm. which was which mm-hmm. is always really nice. Because if you understand it in a way, you understand it. You might not have the training to understand it in a way that a certain group of people want you to understand it but if you get something out of it then you have an understanding of it 
and she really understood that. It's like how people are pretentious about art. Oh, it's yeah. It's the same yeah. thing. I'm not even going to go um, into that because I've got too many jokes about it, but. She managed to attend Hunter College High School, which was intended for intellectually gifted students, and she did graduate from there. Um, so, finger to the white patriarchy that did not want her to succeed mm-hmm. at all in who she was. Um, and then she actually went back to Hunter College uh, for her undergrad, Um and graduated from there in 1959, but in 1954, when she first started at Hunter College, she actually spent a year at the National University of Mexico, which Beverly Threat Cooley, who wrote a basically short bio, uh, said in 1954, she spent a pivotal year as a student at the National University of Mexico, a period described by Lord as a time of affirmation and renewal because she confirmed her identity on personal and artistic levels as a lesbian and poet. And then when she got back to New York City and started going to Hunter College, she started actively participating in the queer scene scene in Greenwich Village, which has always been, like, at least in the 20th century, was always a huge hub. Yeah. She had, um, there's a misconception that a lot of people seem to have nowadays that because uh, queer identities are being talked about more publicly, Um, and are more accessible that if you don't know your identity as a young child, it's invalid. Audre Lorde, you know, was middle-aged when she found her identity, or in the middle of her life when she claimed all of her identities. And after discovering who she was fully as an adult and owning it, she wouldn't shut up about it, and she is absolutely valid as a lesbian. Um, and as a black lesbian. And Ah. so if you're, you know, in your 60s and you realize that you're asexual or if you're in your, you know, 80s and finally understand that you might not fit in a binary gender, you're valid and you're a member of that community and anybody who tells you otherwise is very wrong. Just to contextualize a bit for how much Greenwich Village was considered a huge part of the queer community. That's where Stonewall was. Stonewall was in Greenwich Village. Yep. And Stonewall happened sometime. 1960s. I feel bad. Uh, Stonewall happened, started June 28th, 1969, and ended July 1st, 1969. Yeah. Late 1960s. But... Audre Lorde was definitely around mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, started by a black trans yes. woman. In drag. Yes. In drag. Which is a thing, too. Just because you're a drag artist doesn't make you any less who you are. So, she earned her master's in library science from Columbia in 1961, which she had basically been learning how to be a librarian for her entire college career. She actually worked as a librarian while she was in her undergrad. Something that I have questions about, I don't know if Zoe can answer them, but in 1962, after her earning her master's, she married a man, even though she had already identified as a lesbian. He was a white gay man, Mm -hmm. and they had two children, and then divorced in 1970. I am curious about that whole situation, because it's very intriguing in multiple aspects of it. Did they just get married so that they could have kids? Like, um, That sounds like something I would do. Yeah, they were both 
they were both very much not, or at least it seemed like they weren't into each other because she was a lesbian and he was gay. Um, but they were married for like eight years and had two kids. And I don't, I have questions. Tax breaks? Tax breaks, maybe. So I think I, I love that that's a situation because a lot of people think that you have to live the nuclear family, right? You have to bend to societies well, kids are necessary, etc., etc. And a lot of uh, people in the LGBT community before marriage was legalized, you know, they either to get married, to have a family, had to hide their identities or they had to be roommates <laughs> and be erased that way. I think that oh this was God, a situation. Um, I think this is a situation where Audre Lorde really wanted to be a mother. A lot of her poetry is brought on by this idea that every single child is her own if she sees a stranger on the street she's like whose mother are you like I, you are my face i see my face in you you are in a very bad situation you're a drunkie you're homeless you're this you're that you're you're you have a kid in your arms you know all of these a lot of her poetry towards later in life where she talks more and more about having kids about what being a mother is she says like they're you know dead girls on my doorstep and it's by society's fault but they're my daughters like and so there's this intense kinship that she feels with I think increasing her uh community and bringing them up and I think she wanted to have children of color that she could lead forward and I think that you know, while motherhood isn't all rainbows and kittens, because it's not, motherhood is a very difficult, difficult thing to do, and she had a very strained relationship with her parents. And I think that, you know, in a way, this uh, marriage was kind of the epitome of being a beard in terms yeah. of yeah. Um, being able to not be harassed all the time. I don't think that it was them hiding who they were, and I don't think it was them uh, neglecting their identities. I think it was, this is the only way to have a family at this moment. And I don't know a whole lot about her husband, but I don't think it was all negative. And I don't think that having sex with a man to get pregnant makes her less of a lesbian. A lot of people might say, oh, well, she's bisexual. No, she's a lesbian. Yeah, she says she's a lesbian. She's a lesbian. Right? And we're getting into this age where since people are opening up more and more about their identities, maybe opening up about what they want their life to be, it's okay to be however you identify, even if it doesn't fit what people assume that identity to look like all the time. It doesn't make her any less of a lesbian. It doesn't make someone any less bisexual if they're in a straight passing relationship. It doesn't make anybody less of an asexual person if they aren't sex repulsed, you know? And it's this idea that maybe they both wanted kids, but I think she found happiness and power within actually being able to bring children into the world which not every woman is capable of doing and not every woman wants mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. and i think being a mom 
gave her the strength to continue fighting for liberation for every aspect. I think it's kind of, I mean, not to reduce it, reduce it, but just like what you just said and me thinking about it, it's kind of like, basically, I don't have however much, I don't even know if this was possible back then, but these days it would be like $30,000 to get IVF to, uh, to have a sperm donor as a parent. It's basically just that, but also you get to raise kids with a good friend. Yeah, I, I think that it wasn't that she felt like she could be a single mother. She wanted a partner. She wanted someone to help. And before she found her life partner, Francis Clayton, uh, she found this awesome person who could be a good dad. I think could be a good dad. She, uh, in the poems that I've read, nothing has mentioned a, a an abusive father to her children. <laughs> um, I will say uh, that much. So I think that's a good place to end yeah. because we've been recording for almost 45 minutes. Yeah. Um, so we will leave it there and we'll come we back. will be back next week with more Audrey Lord for you. Until next time. So that's all for part one of Audrey Lord. Cannon Fire was created by Caitlin Porter, Zoe Bergmeyer Sweat, and G. Daly. Thanks to Alan Hardison for our theme song and Brittany Barrel for our banner art. If you want even more awesome content, you can donate as little as $2 to our Patreon. You'll get access to bonus content such as monthly, possibly drunk, rants and life updates, as well as a shout out on the podcast. This is just some of the awesome stuff you can get from us. So go and check us out at patreon.com backslash podcast. If you want to get in touch with us, suggest an author, tell us how much you like the show, tell me how gorgeous I am, um, you can email us at cannonfirepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cannonfirepod and on Facebook and Instagram at cannonfirepodcast. If you would like some other resources or our transcripts, you can go to our website, cannonfirepodcast.com where you can also listen to every single episode. If you like Cannon Fire, we would be so, so incredibly grateful if you would subscribe and rate us on iTunes, subscribe anywhere else you can find find us, and suggest us to a friend while you're at it, because that is the best way to help our podcast grow. And remember, Western Grammar is a white colonial construct. See ya! See ya.